Welcome back to One Step, where we talk about the small steps in the process of finding our truth. We explore life's deepest questions around family, careers, relationships, money, and creativity while also celebrating the small victories. We're breaking down the wall between who we think we should be and who we really are. This is a reminder to ourselves that change doesn't happen overnight. It happens one step at a time. I'm your host, Ingrid Nilsson, and I've spent the last decade sharing my life and personal growth on the internet. But before my internet life, I grew up reading teen magazines. They were my life. Outside of chatting on AIM, of course, and setting away messages and making my away messages really cute and my profile really cute. You know the deal if you grew up during that time. Today, I am talking to, drumroll please, Atuza Rubenstein, who is the former editor-in-chief of Cosmo Girl and Seventeen. She is the editor-in-chief I grew up with and looked up to. And if you were a teen in the late 90s or early 2000s, there's a pretty big chance that you feel the same way. Atuza holds such a special place in my heart because her voice was so different from others in the publishing world, and her work has had a profound impact on who I am today. I can't believe I'm talking to her, just in general, and I also can't believe I am talking to her from my closet. While we're taking some time to get cozy and comfortable here, I wanted to let you know about a couple new things. The first thing is a newsletter that I have launched. So this is the One Step Wellness newsletter, which is kind of a personal dream for me because I have loved writing for my entire life, and I've been so hesitant to put my writing out on a regular basis. And so this is a really special project for me. The newsletter is really a safe space for us to slow down, feel some feelings, have some laughs, and celebrate making it through the week. So emails are going to go out every Friday morning, and I'll pop into your inbox with some cute emojis, talk about the steps that I'm taking to feel better so I can show up in my life and do better. I'll also be curating things from the internet that I have really been loving and also sharing some things that I haven't been loving so much. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the newsletter, and I would love to have you as part of the newsletter community. So if you'd like to sign up, all you have to do is go to our Instagram account, One Step Podcast on Instagram, go to the bio, click the link in our bio, and then just click the little button that says newsletter. And then you just have to enter your email, and you'll get a welcome message from me, and then you'll get the newsletter on Friday morning. And if you do sign up, thank you so much in advance. And thank you to everyone who has already signed up. It's so cool that so many of you are already a part of this. It feels really special to be starting this journey together. I also want to let you know that this week we are having two podcast club meetings. So they will both be happening this Wednesday, April 15th, and we're going to have two different versions. So the first one is a premium podcast club, and this is where you can purchase tickets and the proceeds will go to either a person or organization that is working on COVID-19 relief. We'll also be hosting a second podcast club meeting for free. Both will be small, intimate gatherings so that everyone can participate, and we're going to have some fun activities for you, too. 
I'm really excited about our programming, TBH. We're currently gathering suggestions for where we should donate to, and we want this to be a community experience where we gather suggestions from you and then donate to either a person or organization who is working on COVID-19 relief. The way that you can participate in this is go to the link in our bio. We love the link in our bio. And there's a form that you can fill out and you can nominate a person or organization there. As you're thinking about who or what you want to nominate, think of something that is small, local, and you feel personally connected to because that's really what we're going for with this. We want this to be a connection from the community. And we would love it if you sent in your suggestions. Now, before we jump in, I do want to let you know that we discuss sexual trauma and self-harm. So if this is something that you're not ready for in this moment, that is totally okay. But now is the time that you'll want to tune out. We'll see you in another episode. And if you're sticking around, here she is, the one and only Atuza Rubenstein. Hi, Atuza. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. This is not what I thought it would be like, right? Because when we first set this up, the world had not taken this turn. (laughs) I know. So now here I am in my closet, but we're making it work. So let's dive right in. The first step for transparency. How would you describe your relationship with money growing up? You know, it's a really funny question because I only recently fully understood this about myself when I have uh, seven-year-old twins. And one of them said to me, we were talking about like, how will you be different when you're older? And she looked at me very seriously. And she said, mommy, one thing that is never going to change is I will always be fancy. And she was so serious and earnest about it. And what I realized about myself is that although I led a very different lifestyle than she has, my family had no money at all. I just felt fancy. I don't know, Ingrid, if Fancy Nancy existed when you were a kid, if that was a storybook. That might have come after. But like, I just felt super fancy, even though I had no place to feel fancy. But I didn't have like a funny feeling about money. I wasn't jealous. I just like really did the best with whatever I had. And that feeling of fancy followed me even as I got older and got into fashion and all that stuff. What would you describe your relationship with money like now? I mean, to to sort of be really clear, I felt wealthy when I had a my own apartment that had no kitchen, 300 square feet, including a bathroom. And I felt like I was loaded. I was so proud and I felt so lucky. I live in a very different lifestyle now. I just have so much gratitude. Every time I walk into my apartment, I'm like, holy cow, this is awesome. Like I don't feel um, entitled to it. I feel blessed every day. And I think it's because I grew up without anything. I love that. I love the idea of fancy because I relate to that too. I didn't grow up with a lot of money and I remember getting my first bed and that's what made me feel fancy because before that I was sleeping on the floor in a sleeping bag. We're sharing a bed with either my mom or my grandmother. And so to have my own bed felt like oh my God, I'm the fanciest person alive right now. This is the biggest luxury. I can't tell you how much I relate to that because I also shared a bed with my mom until maybe age 16. 
And so all of this is such gravy that, you know, I, I keep thinking it'll, I'll wake up and it'll be over. And if it is, I'll go do whatever, you know, I need to do. So a lot of your career has been based around making content for teen girls. And I feel like we got a little insight into what Tina Tuza was like, but I would like to know what she was really like, if you could paint a picture for us. Well, it's funny because, you know, a lot of what I talked about with the magazine and and particularly in the editor's letters was about my feelings, what was happening inside. But outside, I was actually like cool and fashionable and beautiful and had a great figure. And like, it's all the stuff that I see now in retrospect. (laughs) You know what I mean? But at the time, I was just like, you know, no boys like me or... I'm hairy legs or, you know, I, I saw all the deficits and I didn't necessarily see all these great assets that now, of course, as a woman of middle age, I look back and I'm like, girl, you were so cute. Like, what were you sitting there like moaning about? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was not a planned pregnancy. So my siblings are much, much older than me. So I was home alone literally, uh, in that my, you know, my mom was, you know, not home till like dinner time. And so all of that time was spent just not doing my homework because I was dyslexic, but I had absolutely no support for it. Right. Today, if you are dyslexic, you're getting all these different supports. And I just had to sort of learn everything on my own. So school was really hard for me. So I'd avoid it. I would be eating snacks like nonstop. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was just alone. I mean, one of the really harder parts of, of Atusa as a teenager, and it's something I never shared at Cosmo Girl or Seventeen. And in fact, I think it's one of the one of the driving forces behind why I left is that I was being molested at home by an older cousin. And that was sort of part of the architecture of my life in a way that like, it's like a piece of furniture. Like, you know how you have certain things in your closet that you just like, they're just there. And, you know, I I realized that as a teenager into college, I was promiscuous and I was acting out in ways Then I was a cutter. And at a certain point, I was like, I think all this stuff has to do with what was happening when I was a teenager. And I felt that at 17, we had done this article, it was called Vagina 101. That was my way of trying to let girls know about their bodies. Cause I felt like had I not drank the shame lemonade that you know my family had given me, which was, you know, don't touch your body, don't look at your body, don't talk about your body. It doesn't exist, particularly, you know, your sexual parts. Maybe I would have been empowered to tell somebody what was happening to me for all those years. We did that article, and I remember Walmart pulled it, Albertsons pulled it, my publisher, which by the way, today, Goop, you know, will run 100 pictures of vaginas, and it's not such a big deal today, but back then it was really a big deal. Kathy Black, who was the president of Hearst, she had my back, which was great. And she supported me. But there was this sense of what are you doing? You know, and I realized that if I can't even empower girls about their bodies without advertisers getting their panties in a knot, I can't tell the story that is both hard for me at the time would have been hard for me to tell because I had a different relationship with my mom and my family. I was certainly less empowered there. I just felt like I, I was a fraud and I, and I didn't have anything further to share. Um, not at that moment. I wasn't healed, you know. 
and not to say, and now I'm healed and I'm perfect and there's no issues. You know, it's a process, but now I have no issue talking about it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I remember the Vagina 101 issue. I remember being a teenager. I think I was a sophomore in high school. I was in my bedroom and I remember flipping to that page and being like, first of all, I was like, what is this? Like, it was just an images that I wasn't expecting to see. And then when I started reading about it, I remember how immediately accepting I was of it. So it was this kind of shock at first. And then it was, oh, okay. And for people who aren't familiar with that section and that issue, um, it was a full page of vulvas and real vulvas. And I had never seen that before as a teenager. I really haven't seen really anything else like it now because this was specifically for teenagers too. Um, and that left such a huge impact on me because, you know, I'm a survivor myself. I'm going to get emotional, but that was such an anchor for me. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that you went through that. Yeah. And it was such an anchor for me because I always had that page to remind me mm-hmm. that my body is supposed to be this way and it's okay that bodies look different and even now i still have that image just in my mind forever and it will always just be this anchor for me and a reminder that you know my body is powerful and that bodies look different and that what i've experienced with my body has been painful and I've also healed from it too. Yeah. Yeah. But it was the first time that I was seeing other real bodies in that way. And it was so incredibly powerful. So it's a personal thank you from me. Oh, thank you. And and even like for myself, like I was in my 30s and I still didn't know what a vulva was. I thought that was the vagina. You know, like I didn't know when I was in my 30s. And I felt like if I didn't know, certainly plenty of school-age girls wouldn't know. And and I think about today, you know, with my own children, although they're not teenagers yet, you know, I make sure that they know what their body parts are called, like the right names and the right terms. And with the hope that if, if somebody crosses that boundary with them, that they have both the vocabulary and the, the balls, <laughs> pun intended, to say something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such a huge thing, too. I think that I learned so much of my vocabulary in terms of my body from 17 because my mom wasn't having those conversations with me. No other adult was really having those conversations with me. And I also was kind of afraid to have them with the adults around me. And so this was my safe space. And I learned so much language just through the magazine. What was it like for you being editor-in-chief of a magazine at such a young age? Because you became editor-in-chief of Cosmo Girl at 26. And then how old were you at 17? I mean, it was like five, four or five years later. So probably like 30 um, is when it happened, the year I was 30 or 31. 
Um, what was it like? You know, it's funny. One year after we launched Cosmo Girl, I did like, I was doing a one year later article with the New York Post. And the reporter asked me, how did you feel about the fact that no one thought you could do it? And I was like, what? No one thought I could do it? Well, thank God, I had no idea. And that's sort of, I'm a little Forrest Gump in that way, in that it didn't even occur to me that no one thought I could do it. It didn't, and I remember even talking to Kathy Black about it a few years later. I said, well, what were you thinking giving a 26-year-old kid this job? And she's like, oh, we just would have replaced you if it didn't work out. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and that just all, I just never occurred to me. So what was it like? Um, it was a lot of work. You know, prior to that, I was a fashion editor, which was way more in line with my, listen, I'm a dyslexic, right? So not to say that fashion people don't know how to read, but I didn't have to read too much in my job. I had to know and love fashion. I had to travel and have great style and be very social, you know, and I was good at all those things. Check, check, check. To be an editor-in-chief, then I had to do a tremendous amount of reading. And in retrospect, I realized it's not that I couldn't read. I just couldn't process it as fast as somebody else could. But, you know, I just, I would work sometimes 24 and 48-hour days. I worked certainly every day on the weekends. And I just, like many people, have this work ethic that was like, we are going to make this happen no matter what. And in a big way, I think that that commitment, like I would be at things like the Met Ball and I would leave super early to get back to the office. You know, the older editors at other magazines would always sort of roll their eyes at me like, oh, she's such a brown nose or, you know, whatever. And it wasn't that I was brown nosing. It was just that it was, it was a lot for me and I, I wanted to do a good job. It was really important to me because I wanted to, I wanted to prove my worth. Um, as you know, unfortunately, when you are molested and sexually abused as a young person, part of what you carry with you is a sense of worthlessness. And I felt in some ways innately worthless. I felt worthless to my mother because if I had any value at all, wouldn't they have noticed what was happening to me under their noses? I think about my kids, they walk through the door. I'm not a perfect mother, I'm not a perfect person by any chance, but I can tell within 30 seconds if something happened at school that was upsetting, much the less if my child was being attacked in my home every single day. So, you know, like that feeling of worthlessness, I think was a tremendous engine and it was, actually a great gift in retrospect. Everything is a gift, including the incest in retrospect, because being able to hit my goals so fast and so early put me in a position to realize I didn't need to continue to go further. Like, check, check. I did what I wanted to do. At the height of my career, I stopped. And for the past 13 years, have full-time focused on my healing. And having children is a part of that healing, because then you learn how to sort of parent and, and also reparent yourself. How has having kids been a part of your healing process? Because I think that this experience, when I hear from other survivors, is so interesting to me, because I feel like what I've heard from other people is 
in a way you kind of revisit these younger parts of yourself. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think you can revisit them without having kids. But listen, the second they handed me my oldest, she's 11, I never had the same relationship with my mother again. Prior to Angie, I was still continuing. Everything I did was to please my mother. And the reason I wanted to please her is because when she was happy with me and when she was around was the only time I was safe. And once they gave me this baby and I realized that I am the only person responsible for her well-being. I mean, sure, her dad too, but like really me, who's like feeding and all of that stuff, that my body is producing her food. How could she have let that happen to this defenseless creature? And, and so I really had a very big shift in my relationship with my mom. And I needed to have that separation in order to, as you said, reparent myself. So it's not even through being a perfect parent. It's actually through being an imperfect parent to my children that I see, okay, like I might have some compassion for my mom in some of the ways that she was or see the room there is for, for my improvement and that maybe some of the personality traits that made me very successful at work made me a very unsuccessful wife and human being in more interpersonal relationships. But the most important part of the healing has really come from reparenting myself. And when hard things happen, because they do, it could relate to something with my kids or it could relate to anything. If I'm having big triggered feelings, it's because it's going back to something from my childhood. You know, I see it as like, the time in which our parents are raising us is giving us our window into the world. And it's through their lens and through their window that we see the world. And then once we're on our own, it's a matter of, okay, do we want to just keep looking through that one window or do we want to explore other views? And for the past 13 years, that's really what I've been doing is just reparenting myself and having different perspective on all the things that have shaped me, good and bad. I love that. I totally see the window that, you know, I was brought up in and how I saw the world through that window, but I had never really looked at it that way. And I love that. It makes things so clear. You know, I'm someone who at this point, I don't think I want to have children. And so I have been learning how to reparent myself as my adult self now and, you know, not having children around. But I think it has been incredibly helpful to hear the experience of people who are parents, to be around people who have teenagers and little kids. It has really brought this connection to my younger self that I never thought that I would have or could have. And it feels so special mm. and so sacred. Mm. I think the, the children thing amps it up. It does open your heart in a way that is very painful if you've had a traumatic childhood uh, because your children will bring up your trauma in very visceral ways not even through their own lives. You'll project stuff on them and things will be happening. And it's like, if you don't learn your lesson, it will happen to them again and again. And it's sort of like so intense and the stakes are so high that 
had I known all of this, I wouldn't say I wouldn't have had children because I love my children and I, I wouldn't do things differently. Let's just say I'm glad I didn't know how intense it would be before I had them because I, I wouldn't have had them. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like how you didn't know that people thought you couldn't do it. I feel like right, right. <laughs> those moments are sometimes just good to have. <laughs> and I remember it's like after I left 17, after about a like good eight, nine months of thinking, I was like, you know what? I am going to Tibet and I am going to all like the holy mountains and this is what I'm doing. And then I got pregnant and it was then I realized the mountain had to be inside of me and the work would have to happen within this sort of different environment that I hadn't expected to be in, meaning like, you know, private schools and, you know, all this jazz. But to your point, you can build those spiritual experiences, whether you have kids or on a mountaintop or whether you're in a closet, you know, like yeah. you are now. <laughs> yeah. Do you think when you were at the magazines, you were kind of creating different windows for young girls to look through? That's a good question. I mean, the way that I thought of it back then was that I was creating care packages every month. And it would be based on what they were saying. So I would read their letters. And, and that was something that was really important to me. And, and the team would do it too. Like I'd say, like, you can't start your day until you read 20 minutes of letters. Because what, what happens for a lot of people at magazines, I, I don't know if it happens anymore, it's such a different industry, but they would just say, oh, like, let's do an article like InStyle did about blah, blah, blah. Like they would just find their inspiration from other magazines. And that to me felt, I don't know, not being of service to our audience. So I just wanted it to come right from the girls. And so for me, it was just like every month of a care package based on what their vibe felt like and what they needed. And also a lot was what, what I had needed when I was a kid. Yeah. And I feel like I definitely felt that as a reader. I grew up in an environment where my mom couldn't buy a lot of the things that were featured in the magazine, but she was so proud that she could give me a subscription to the magazine. And I could feel how big it was for her, but also for me to just, because it was a window for me. It was like one window, but it was better than having no windows. Right. And when you were a kid, there still was AOL and, you know, there were other portals. I remember being senior year, because I could picture which dorm room it was, senior year at Barnard College. I was reading an article in 17 about cutting and they listed like, what are some things that make girls cut? And I was a cutter and I had no idea that anybody else in the world did this. This was the first time because there was no internet. I certainly wasn't going to school saying, hey, do you cut your arms and legs? So first of all, my mind was blown that other people do this. And then they listed incest as one of the things. So to me, like that sealed my deal in terms of knowing that that's the industry that I'd want to be in. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, the topics that you did cover in the magazine, like the Vagina 101, you were saying it got pulled from, you know, different stores, which I wasn't even aware of at the time because I was a subscriber. But as I've gotten older, I've realized how controversial that issue was because I talked to my friends who also read 17 and I was like, remember that issue? Because I was like, how could you not remember that issue? And they're all like, 
what do you mean? I don't know that issue because they were buying it from the newsstands. They weren't subscribed. And so I still got it because I was a subscriber, but all of my friends never saw it. And now that I'm aware of the controversial nature of some of the content in the magazine, I'm wondering how did you manage this scrutiny and criticism when you were editor-in-chief? I don't care. And I, and I also credit my team. They didn't care. Like we were all about the reader. If I did something that my boss thought was wrong, Kathy Black, she was a ballsy lady. I'm sure she still is. She worked on Ms. Magazine when it launched. So for her, I mean, she's like a true feminist. I know that in her DNA, she's such a renegade in the publishing industry. As long as she felt what we were doing was okay, then, you know, one of the other things at the end that was sort of bothering me was Gawker, which doesn't exist anymore, but they were like obsessed with me and they would write about me every day, which didn't impact you because at that point you were a reader, you certainly weren't following the media, you know, blogs or whatever. But while their constant scrutiny of me personally was sort of good for my career, it made me hire, I mean, the week that I resigned, I had a phone call from Vanity Fair and from New York Magazine, both wanting to do profiles on me. I was a teen magazine editor, you know what I mean? So I do feel that all of that Gawker coverage raised my profile. It made me so uncomfortable because of the sort of secret I was holding. And also I was cheating on my husband, which was another symptom of the incest, right? And I just was like not... I don't know, in some ways, like I was living my best life, but personally, I was living my worst life. And I wasn't in any way the person that I wanted to be. And so their constant scrutiny of me, when my foundation was so not in balance, made me realize like, ugh, I don't care how well the magazine's doing. Like, this doesn't feel good. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I feel like we often look at people who are really successful and going through a huge moment in their careers as like they have it all together. Everything's perfect. Nothing is going wrong. But I felt like in some of the biggest moments in my career, I'm just like shattered on the inside. I have no idea who I am. Yeah. I'm trying to figure it out. I feel like I'm a whole different person at home versus who I am at work. And you mentioned leaving 17 at the height of your career. What got you to that decision? I think it's all the things we're talking about. You know, I felt like a fraud in that I had this thing that happened to me when I was a teenager that I couldn't talk about. You know, I still felt shame. I was afraid. Like the way that my mom dealt with it was to further shame at me as opposed to, you know, say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, just the whole thing was handled so badly. So I couldn't share that. I was having extramarital affairs, which was certainly not in keeping with my ethical beliefs, but yet I was in pain and I was clearly fucked up from everything that happened to me as a kid and had not in any way resolved that. That felt off. I wasn't happy. And, and what happened was they were waiting to get my contract back. And, you know, I had a nice raise and they had said they wanted to put me at another magazine that was a bigger and better. And it was the magazine that I had told my boss was 
my dream job. And I realized I didn't want that anymore. I could see that the industry was changing, that even at that magazine, the experience to the readers and to the people who worked there was not as elevated as it used to be. Just all of those things just combined, melted into a soup that didn't taste good. And there was a day that my husband made my salary in a day, which was not typical for him. And I was like, I don't want to sign this contract. Actually, I was like, I'll sign this contract if they pay me X. And he was like, oh, okay, no big deal. Well, why are you worth X? And I was like, well, I'm not. It's not. And, I'm, and he's like, well, why are you asking for that amount? And I was like, because I hate this. I'm so uncomfortable. This doesn't feel good anymore. And I don't want to do it. And he was like, then don't do it. So I just didn't sign. I didn't know yet. I didn't know I had permission to just stop and reassess and reevaluate. So I was like, all right, so it's just about, you know, my brand is so big and I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And so I had like a fabulous CAA agent and I had a famous literary agent and I had surrounded myself with all of these. And my attorneys were all these powerful men not realizing that this is the little girl who was being molested finally has all these like sharks, these powerful, strong men around me to protect me. But every deal they'd bring me, I wouldn't sign. And they were getting really mad. And at one point I said to my husband, because like I had a book deal and there was an auction and I wouldn't take it because they wouldn't approve gold edged paper before I signed the contract. And I was like, you understand, right, Ari? You understand why I won't sign this contract with them. And he was like, honey, to me, it sounds like you don't want to be in business. Because if someone wants to write a book, they take the book deal. They don't say, if you don't let me make it look like a Bible, then I'm not doing the book deal. And he was like, you got to stop wasting these people's time. And I was like, wow, I really heard him. And I stopped at that moment. I just stopped. I just didn't know that you could stop. I didn't know. Um, but I needed to. I was petted for, I don't know what, but I'm glad I didn't find out. <laughs> Do you remember what your first day stopping was like? Yes. I went to the subway because I'd always had a car and a driver. Saeed, I love him to this day. And I went to the subway and I was like, how much is it for a token? And they were like, a token? They were like, People don't use tokens for years. People use Metro cards. I was like, oh, what's that? I mean, it was definitely a new world. And I, and I realized like how out of touch editors were because we were just constantly being like, I, I don't think it's like that anymore. I, I don't know what it's like these days. This was a long time ago. But I assure you that I'm fully familiar with Metro cards now. And <laughs> I, I no longer have a car and driver. And I am slugging it uh, outside of social distancing um, all over the city on public transportation. But yeah, like I just, it was weird. I still woke up on time, you know, early. At that time, when I really first stopped with the magazine, I was going then into this whole like CAA, like Atusa Inc. kind of world. And it's funny, I had named my company Big Mama, not realizing that that was a very prescient name for a company, but it wasn't going to be a company. It was going to be my family. <laughs> wow. How did you find 
forgiveness for yourself when you moved into this space of stopping? Because I feel like that is definitely part of my journey, you know, looking at these past moments in my life and cultivating forgiveness for myself, for other people, and it can be so hard. So how have you found that space? I call it compassion, you know, and I still do it. It's an active practice, you know, in terms of, you know, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for my perpetrators. They were abused in different ways. And I have written letters and you know, I, I wish that our family would acknowledge their abuse and I wish they would acknowledge their abuse more in order to sort of end the cycle of abuse. You know, I feel like I'm doing my part by just, you know, talking about it openly. But, you know, self-compassion is something that comes up every day. At any given moment, something could happen. It could be something small, like if I perceive that I have slighted you in some way or somebody yells at one of my kids for going too close to them with a bike you know whatever it is when i get that feeling in my body wherever it is it could be my throat it could be my stomach it could be my chest usually for me it's in my throat and my chest i know that it has something to do with the first window i had on life so from when i was a kid something's being triggered I might, if I can't do it in that moment because I'm out and about or I'm taking care of the kids or whatever, for sure I will revisit it later. And I go back to the, to the little Atusa who had an experience that this related to, this feeling kicked up. And I will see her and I will hold her and I will talk to her and I will tell her that I'm here now. And that was a hard time and no one was taking care of her but I'm here now and I'll always be here with her. And that is how self-compassion looks in my life. You know, when I think about, I have a tremendous amount of grief for how I mistreated my husband for all of those years, but there's a little Latusa that was making those choices out of pain and fear. And so in the moments where that gets kicked up, there have been nights where I've just gone to bed holding her. Mm-hmm and checked in with her even if I wake up to pee or just like wake up in the middle of the night for something like I'll just check and she's still there like in the, whether it's in my throat or in my heart or in my belly wherever she lives and then it usually that's what helps I love that taking care of little Atuza, and I feel like that can be just so powerful to have that connection as adult Atuza, how have you navigated the contemporary criticism around teen media from when you were editor-in-chief. How do you navigate reflective criticism? Because, you know, you were saying when you were in the industry, it was Gawker, which I wasn't even aware of at that time. But now it's like the internet. Everything shows up on the internet and you know about it. How do you navigate that world? You mean like people who say that we could have done a better job with the way we handled things? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I did the best I could, you know, and so I don't get defensive. I feel in many times I agree. I'm a different person, you know, but I I know with 100% certainty that myself and everybody on my team, I had the most spectacular team at both magazines. These are people who like bled dry for our readers, both the words people, the editors, writers, the designers, everybody, everybody. 
I know we did our best. Could we have done better? Sure. If we would have known better, we would have done better. <laughs> but I think we, we did great. And so I, I'm always interested to, you know, read stuff that's about the past. Yeah, I have no, that doesn't trigger me at all. Yeah. And I feel like it takes time to know better too. And I also wonder what are we doing now in this moment that in the future, reflectively, we're going to look back on and think, oh my God, what were they doing? Why were they doing that? Well, the problem is they're not doing anything. That I mean, that is the one thing I think in retrospect, we're going to see that it reminds me of like how my kids now, if they have like a Zoom play date because of social isolation, all the kids are just like, wah, wah, you know, they're all just like talking and nothing's really being said of any substance. And that's happening a lot now, right? It's just a lot of people talking uh, and they everybody has a right to talk. And I think that's great. But I think it would be good for there to be more leadership. Like I feel like when Oprah left, she left a big hole, you know, although she's doing really great things at OWN. It's different than, you know, when she was on every day at four, which, you know, I was watching when I was a kid too. <laughs> exactly. If you were to put together a teen magazine now, content wise, what would you want to put in there? Like what is the hole that you think would need to be filled? Oh, I think spiritual because there are no more spiritual beings than young people they are prime for that kind of content. And yet the only content of that sort they get is if they go to a religious school or a religious organization with their parents. And sometimes that might not resonate for them. And so then they sort of close that door. But we, we did try to do that at Cosmo Girl. I remember we had Don Miguel Luis, you know, the guy who wrote the four agreements. I mean, we had a lot of spiritual writers. Marianne Williamson wrote for us, like a lot of people like that wrote for us. But I think there's an opportunity to even deepen that further because it's a complicated world they're entering, you know, and, and to, to have like a really strong spiritual base. If I had that kind of foundation, I wouldn't have had to leave my well, career to build it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel exactly the same way. If I had had that as a teenager, it would have at the very least just given me some kind of grounding or comfort because I was pulling away from established religion, especially as a teenager. And I'm so happy you said that. That was not what I was expecting, but <laughs> that answer makes me so happy. So we like to end with celebrating a small victory mm. from the week. So what's been a small victory for you? Well, it's sort of a big victory because this week I was a full-on pioneer woman in that I have homeschooled three children. I have mopped, vacuumed, done all the sheets, bathrooms, everything in my house. I've cooked three meals a day, like real meals, and I feel really proud of myself. You know, I've definitely yelled a bit through it. I mean, just getting through a week of homeschooling is, is a big accomplishment for me. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a huge accomplishment. I'm celebrating you for that. That's a big one. Thank you. And thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It was a dream to talk to you. 
Oh, you're awesome. Thank you. And c congratulations to you for all of your incredible authenticity. And you put yourself out there. And I, I saw that the moment you put yourself out there in, in your truest form, uh, your life just exploded. And, and I think you're a great, great role model for all of us to, to continue to do the same. Thank you so much, Atiza. That means so much to me. Atuza, thank you again so much for being here. My teen heart is so happy and feels so nurtured. And my adult self is also screaming too. I feel like my two selves are just, oh, I feel like I'm on a cloud right now. It was so incredible talking to Atuza. And thank you so much to everyone out there who is listening. On the next episode, Christina and I are going to be reflecting on this conversation. And I'm really excited for that because Christina also grew up with Atuza as well. So prepare for a really great chat around that. So in our conversation, Atuza mentioned having compassion and really nurturing and comforting little Atuza. I would love to know how you show compassion for the younger person inside of you, whether it's the inner child or the inner teen, and I would love for you to send a voice note to us. And you can do this by using the Voice Memo app or the Voice Record app. And then all you have to do is email us at onesteppodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I think it would be really special to hear how everyone is taking a step to nurture the younger person inside of themselves. I feel like that's such a huge place of compassion and we could all use a little bit of that right now. Also, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. If you know someone who would enjoy listening to this, please share it with them. We are definitely a community-fueled podcast, so it would mean so much if you shared this with somebody that is meaningful in your life. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at One Step Podcast to stay up to date. Thank you so much to our producer, Christina Cleveland, who was also fangirling along with me. Happy I wasn't alone in that. Our sound engineer and editor, Tung Chen. And of course, my studio, my closet in New York City. Take care, everyone, and we'll talk soon.